On today's episode of The Real Deal, we meet Stephen Wolf, otherwise known as Wolf, whom I've known for longer than I care to admit. Great friend, incredible musician, and Steve gets real about personal development, professional development, what it takes to succeed in the music industry, and so much more. Cue the intro. Welcome to The Real Deal, where we get real about what it takes to succeed, whether it's wealth, health, relationships, or finding your purpose. We talk with the masters to uncover the secrets to defying the odds and creating your own rock star legacy. I'm Doug. After working on multiple Grammy-winning records, years on the road as a national trainer with Tony Robbins, a published author, transformational speaker, and your personal translightenment coach, I'm committed to your transformation, enlightenment, and exponential growth. And now, the real deal on. Are you feeling stressed out, perhaps being overwhelmed by anxiety, trepidation of things to come? Then go to guidedhypnotic.com and download your free guided hypnotic meditation. That's guidedhypnotic.com. So that is my, uh, I, I self-sponsor at yeah. the moment. So. <laughs> cool. All right, so here we go. Stephen Wolf, also known simply as Wolf, is one of the world's most in-demand studio musicians. His discography includes numerous number one gold, platinum, and Grammy-winning records. A virtuoso drummer and a world-class programmer with an encyclopedic musical vocabulary spanning every musical genre, his distinctive skill set and versatility have made him the go-to rhythm solution for a long list of the world's top recording artists and producers. In addition to drumming and programming, he's also an accomplished producer, songwriter, and and remixer ladies and gentlemen i bring to you the wolf omg so dude my brother from another mother we've we we can definitely go back and share we've known each other for uh perhaps half half of our lifetimes almost almost i want to say almost yeah because that yeah i i was we didn't really start working together till I stopped touring because that's when I was just focusing. That's true. On, All right. So we knew of each other yeah. and then and then started working closely but, together. But, at least, but more than a third. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. So uh, we've been yeah. some late nights in the studio and and cranking out some yeah. amazing music. Um, yeah. So the I always thought you were virtuoso. Um, but I, I I forgot you went to Berkeley and like you are super classically trained like you're 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 no joke. Yeah, I mean, I, I well, thanks. I got most of my training pre Berkeley through through uh, private, having re- access to great private teachers as a kid in Philly in the Philly area, and um, yeah, but and just growing. There's such great talent in Philly. I grew up playing with a lot of musicians like Billy Mann, somebody that, that you know through mm-hmm. our old friends um we were in bands together in junior high and high school and a bunch of other that went on to be successful also we all came up playing together so by the time i got to berkeley i wasn't even planning on going um but my parents insisted that all of their kids it was the immigrant thing like you're all going to college you're going to do better than we did and um i i just wanted to move to new york or la and just continue playing in bands and making a name for myself and 
the compromise was I go to Berkeley, but I already knew that if I went to Berkeley, I wasn't going to graduate. So <laughs> I, I, that was my, I just stuck to that. I only, I didn't sign, I didn't sign up for a wide enough range of classes to, to be able to graduate. I just focused on the, on the things I wanted to, to get together while I was there. But I mostly went there to network and play with people, which is what happened and got me to my first like major label gig. And then it dropped out. How long did you go? Um, two and a half semesters. Okay. Yeah. So prior to that, you were already starting to gain momentum and in the industry and so forth. I'm what working, was, yeah. Yeah. yeah, like you were playing with Billy and all those guys prior to that. I mean, well, that was like in high school. And if, if not looking back, if, if we had just stayed, if I had stayed in any one of the bands I was in and we all stayed in Philly, like we all would have gone on to make something happen, but we all kind of were going on our separate trajectories and then some of us have kind of come back together and I just did a record with Billy that he doesn't produce as much anymore he's more an executive at this point and right. a manager and a publisher but he uh he still produces certain projects so I still work with him which is a trip um but uh, I want oh, I wanted to say something before we get further into it yeah um when I when the when the industry started changing and budgets started dropping and uh, Jive, a guy we were working with, insisted I get my own Pro Tools because it costs money for me to just show up to, to whatever studio, where Dream Factory or wherever, for me to just bring my NPC and print stems for you guys. He was like, you should be able to do this from home. Right. And um, you, more than anybody else, helped me get over the, the Pro Tools learning curve. Because when I first got it, I was so resistant. I didn't even want to get Pro Tools. And do you remember when it went from being like unaffordable for basic mo mostly unaffordable like you needed to have a huge budget right to, and then they came out with pro tools le right and yes. which was the first time you could get into pro tools for like a thousand bucks yeah and i think i think le came with like 24 tracks 16 before yeah, they, it, was, yeah it wasn't full yeah yeah but you you came to my place you you like walked me through everything and you and you were like, yeah, call me anytime, and I would, and I called you randomly, and I was like, hey man, what? What's this again, and you really, that was a game changer. So thank you. And, mm -hmm. and anytime I convince friends of mine, artists I work with, to get their own Pro Tools rig, I'm like, just get it. Call me. Call everybody else. You know, that's how I learned, and I always think of you when I. Oh, when thank, I you, so, I, thank you, brother. I, I'm, I'm tickled. Because, uh, you know, like it's my, as you know, you know, my, my role in life has always been to do whatever I can to add value. And if, if that's something yeah. I did that added value, then, then awesome. Uh, I do remember that. And I thought you were just calling to hang out, but apparently you just wanted me for my skills. <laughs> yeah. I know. Um, well, yeah. you know, so interesting. So question. Yeah. As a drummer, and like you and Joe Franco are very similar in you adopted, you were early adopters in technology. Was that, um, were you able to translate that same adoption from going to playing live drums to programming drums to go, okay, well, I guess I got to learn a new technology. Yeah. Yeah. What I was mean, it like it, when you switched over to sort of learning like programming versus playing? Um, I started early enough and the thing is getting into Pro Tools, now I'm glad I did because yeah. I program in Pro Tools. I, I haven't touched an NPC or any other like hardware in I don't know how long, but um, 
when I got into programming, I was, I was still in high school. Oh, and wow. Okay. It, it happened for organic reasons. Cause I was very into, at that point I was already seriously working towards the 10,000 hours of just drum, like drum practice and performance. And, um, but, and so I was like really nerding out hard to, I got to a certain point, I, you know, like a lot of kids, like I was listening to what was on the radio. And then as a drummer, when I wanted to get better, I realized I needed to kind of get more into like the, all the master drummers were jazz drummers, jazz and fusion drummers. So um, I started, I was going really hard in that direction, but I was still also listening to the radio. So I was, and I only learned this term recently sorry our dog freaks out lobo it's not your fish yes <laughs> so um so uh i was listening i had passive influences like there were i was actively studying and transcribing my favorite jazz like quote-unquote virtuoso drummers but also i was learning a lot from just listening to whatever was on like rock rate classic rock or modern alternative rock radio at the time but like like drummers who just knew how to play songs, who who may have known how to, a lot. There were master drummers that like Steve Smith, for example, in Journey, was a virtuoso drummer. But like, I was listen, I was picking up his shit and Ringo Bonham, people that I didn't necessarily. It wasn't so complex I had to transcribe it, but I was just picking, absorbing it by listening to the music. Um, and then same thing with drum machines because I was also listening before hip hop was even called hip hop. It was just on R and B radio stations. You were hearing more drum machines on parts. And then when it was, they were still called rap, you would, they would like the R and B stations before they switched to hip hop and R and B, they would have like an hour a day of, of early hip hop stuff. Right. And so I was just kind of like absorbing, what drum programming sounded like. And I remember the first record I heard, I, I had a lot of jobs growing up before I was making money in music full time. Among them, I was scooping ice cream at Baskin Robbins. And I remember we would just keep the radio on and I remember hearing Run DMC and we worked, you were on that session with Run, right? Yeah. With mm -hmm. Yes. So, um, but I remember hearing Sucker MCs, which was, which was one of the first tracks like hits I heard that was nothing but vocals and a drum machine and a very simple drum machine part of that. And I remember hearing that because a lot of the other stuff I heard, I was like, well, I can play that stuff on a drum set, but these were sounds that like to really make it sound the way it sounded in the production, I would need a drum machine. So I decided I was going to save up and buy my first drum machine. So I was already, so, and I did, and I taught myself to program. So I was already programming in high school. And then by the time I was at Berkeley, I was, I was still doing some programming. And then when I got my first touring gig, one of the reasons I got the gig was because I had to know how to play along with the sequencer. And I'm um, also- And, and control and it, that, probably. Yeah, control it. Well, actually on that gig, I wasn't. The keyboard player was controlling it. Huh. But, um, I, but I did have to get um, my own pad controller to trigger certain sounds. And, um, and then that led to when that artist was doing his next record, he let me co-write some stuff where I started a song with, with a program, with a drum program. Um, and then he and my friend Dave DeLone, the keyboard player in that band at the time, they, they would write on top of the beat that I programmed. And um, so yeah, that was my first major label songwriting credit was, was because I programmed a beat. So- um, do, you, do you remember your first drum machine? Yes. It was you still have it? No, I wish I did. Um, 
it, it was like a poor man's Lindrum because the, the Lindrum's at probably five G's or something back then. So um, my drum, my first drum machine was like $300 and it took me months of like working every day after school and weekends to save up for that. And um, it was a Yamaha RX series. They, they made like an RX 15, 21 and 11, I think with a three. And I had the, the mid-level one. I couldn't afford the, 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 I think higher level had a few more sounds on it, but yeah, it was just a, it, it was basically, and you couldn't load your own sounds. I don't think it just came with the sounds it came with. You could tune them. You could, you could, uh, uh, it could store a certain amount of, of uh, programs and then you can combine programs into like a song form. And so and, yeah. the people you were around at that time, yeah. were they also, cause you said you were one of the reasons why you got the gig was because you adopted yeah. the new technology. Yeah. Did you get any resistance from any of your other musician or drummer friends? Like, oh, that ain't real and, and like give um, you a hard time? Not so much because I was still doing it. On, it was more like as a drummer, I was bulletproof. You know what I mean? If I was relying solely on the electronic thing, yeah, then maybe I would have caught some flack. But it was I was always primarily drumming on those gigs. Right. And it wasn't until I got into session work that I would there it got to the point where certain producers didn't even realize I was a drummer because they were they had gotten my number as a programmer and and it came up that I that I play real drums so like I forget the first time somebody said was like I didn't, I didn't know you played drums like I was like yeah that's how I got into this so um so yeah what an interesting like that's actually a really interesting distinction and yeah. curious that yeah. someone would hire someone to program drums that didn't inherently necessarily have drumming well, that's, skills. You remember, you must remember when you were working with Rick Wake also, there were certain people that were just like the programmer guys. Right. And girls, and um, basically they, they were mostly keyboard players. Right. Who, in addition, but they didn't really do drums as well. They, in addition, but they, I wouldn't necessarily. Well, they, they did it as well for basic stuff. If if, if they right. needed somebody to program like a fake live drum thing to sound like it was a real drummer, bebop, then you needed somebody with a drum vocabulary. But I mean, there were people when I was, with exceptions like Joe Franco and um, Jimmy Braylauer and Sammy Marandino were a few of the early session drummers that kind of crossed over to programming, especially Jimmy Braylauer, who became like just yeah. a programmer. Yeah. Um, it's most of the programmers I saw on like the names I saw on records were people like David Frank or like Prince who were not primarily drummers. Right. Um, and then, um, and, and like Teddy Riley and like, who was also an early like programming influence on me. He was, as far as I know, primarily a keyboard player. So there were a lot of, there were a lot of people that, that like the, the drum programming didn't necessarily have to have like drumistic fills. It just had to have cool sounding fills or no fills right. at all. A lot of times, a lot of times a fill wasn't a fill. It was a mute, you know, right. a mute going into the chorus. So and I guess there's also something to be said for that ignorance that sometimes Oh, you come up with something you never, you would never think of because I, I, like, I learned so much from Jive, yeah. like because he really <laughs> was all instinct. Yeah, and and he would like beatbox something and be like, do that, and I would say sometimes I'd be like, no, that just doesn't. <laughs> and other times he it, it he would 
come up with something and I was, I would think about it and I'd be like, yeah, even though that is so not a drum, like a drumistic thing to do, it sounds cool. So why not? So, right. And that right. was an important lesson for me to like, get out of, get out of my own way and just like be open to anything working musically. So, um, so how did you, as you started growing in, in your career and then you shared, you, you went on tour, what were some of the, the challenges and the transitions that you had? Cause once you start building a flow in one area, whether it be touring or yeah. sessions, I mean, you kind of get momentum. How, how did you balance that? That's the thing. And like in hindsight, and this can be a, a later part of the discussion with personal growth there, there, I was kind of on autopilot. Like, I was so imbalanced. I, it, it was a blessing and a curse to grow up with trauma because um, that tr so, something that I was really doing as a defense and like survival thing, mm. not even realizing I was doing it was basically, it was really distracting myself right. and like leaning hard in, into music. And um, if I if I had been like a more well balanced person and grown up in a more functional household, um, it's I probably would not have like just put everything into music. So right. um, something good came out of it, obviously. But I was very stunted as a person, so I was not definitely not consciously awake. So um, I was just going by instinct and you know instinct can be a good thing but if if your subconscious is full of garbage then sometimes your instincts are you know you're definitely self-sabotaging and um so i just kind of was like going with the flow and because i i had skills in different areas and and i was versatile enough to play with different types of things that also worked against me because if i just stayed in one lane i'd be like the guy in that lane because, and I look back at my friends who have become like the person in that lane, it's because that's all they focused on. Right. And that's, and usually it's because that's really the only thing they did really well. So, um, I, so it's like, I did a lot of things well, but I, I wasn't necessarily like the best rock drummer or the, I was like a world-class rock drummer, but I have friends that like are like the best among the best like living rock drummers. Same thing with jazz, same thing with fusion, funk, R&B, reggae, whatever. I can do all that stuff really well and I can program really well. And, um, but they, I'd never just like leaned in and stayed in one thing long enough. So as a result, there were times where it felt like I wasn't getting anywhere because I would do really well in one area and then I would just jump to the next thing. And it, I, I wasn't like aware, self-aware enough and seeing the big picture enough to realize I should really just kind of like stay with some momentum in one area. The good thing is though, it's, it's by doing everything I did for long enough, eventually it reached like a tipping point with I'm the guy that does everything. And that's, because I had some, like some like younger drummers hit me up when I, it seemed like overnight I was getting like featured in magazines and like in the drum world because I never right. even cared about the drum world because drummers don't hire me. So <laughs> I had drummer friends that were like pushing hard to be a modern drummer and doing drum clinics and that not to knock that stuff. I grew up right. and learned a lot from drum clinics, but I realized at a certain point, like drummers aren't hiring me for shit. Occasionally somebody will ask me to sub on something, but um, I was just interested in working. So I kind of ignored the, the, the drum world 
But in the meantime, I remember every once in a while, I'd see one of my friends on the cover of Modern Drummer and I'd be like, wow, I've played with, I've done some really huge shit. Why, why, why aren't, why isn't the drum world like reaching out to me for that kind of stuff? But I, it's cause I was just jumping from thing to thing. And, um, but eventually I had been on enough different things where, where it'd be like, Hey, this wolf guy, we keep seeing him. Like, exactly. And, and, and it seemed, and then that kind of snowballed where I went from like never having been featured in everything to getting like my first magazine covers. And, and it seemed like, and one of my friends was like, man, how did you make that happen so quickly? I was like, so quickly, I got my first like major label <laughs> gig in 1989. It, it took <laughs> this decades of like doing a lot of everything. So, so yeah let's go a little bit into that psychology of what was motivating you to not like not stay in your lane as it were like not to when another opportunity came were you in a a boredom state to go well okay that's that's nice uh any lennox that's great okay oh okay well i played this record Ooh, okay like what was the motivating factor was all coming from a healthy place in that um most of these gigs, they were, they weren't retainer gigs. So God, it would okay. be, I had bills to pay. You know what I mean? Yeah. And when I was working with Grover Washington Jr., that was one of the two, at the time in Philly, there were like two like legacy gigs, Patti LaBelle and Grover Washington Jr. And then I think a, late, a little later, Boys to Men, but the, really growing up, there were two big artists based out of Philly. And um, so if I lived in Philly and was paying Philly rent, I could have just done Grover and then some like other things in between, but like living in New York and getting Philly scale pay. Right. Um, and I didn't do the Grover gig for the money. I mean, it, money was okay, but I did it cause I love Grover's music and love Grover yeah. and love the band. Um, so, but yeah, I would be out for however many months and then I'm living off of that money and then, but I got to do other shit. And at that point, I knew enough different people, different things. So people would call, and a lot of times I had to say no to things. But if if my if I wasn't on the road, I would just say yes to the next thing that I wanted to do. And um, what made me stop all that was I realized I really wanted to be doing more session work because I would get like I was talking before we went live. I was talking about my the first Grammy winning record I worked on was a Rick Wake slash Gary Haas production. Shout out to Gary. Um, hey. Yeah, um, Celine Dion, and that was, be- and I did that gig, I wasn't even the first call because I wasn't like primarily a session musician, but it was, I probably through Billy Mann. I, I, I'm guessing Billy told Gary about me, I think. It's possible my name came through a few people, but Gar- Gary, one of like Steve Ferroni or one of like the first call New York guys at the time who wasn't available. It was like, I was off the road for a couple weeks and they were like, can you come to Power Station today? And I just showed up. There were I didn't know who Celine Dion was, and uh, there was sheet music. It was old school where there was a full rhythm, like a rhythm section packing yeah. together. And um, and I just forgot about that session. And I and I charged like single scale. Like I just I did it. I didn't even ask for cartridge at the time. I don't think I just like showed up with their shit. And um, and then I don't know. Like less than a year later. I ran into somebody who was like, hey, man, congratulations. I saw your name on the Celine Dion record. And I, st- I didn't know what they were talking about. And then, like, it went platinum. It, it won two Grammys, I think. And, um, yeah, and then all of a sudden, people started calling me more for sessions. And I, w- and I would miss them because I was on the road. Uh-huh. But to, to get back to your question, I would just, I loved playing all different types of music. And I had bills to pay. So, right. and I loved 
and you know, like part of it is the hang. Like, yeah. you, like you take certain gigs, not just because of the music, but like, I love being on the road with these guys. And like, I love this crew and whatever. So, um, so yeah, I, I just was going from thing to thing and I love doing recording sessions when I got called for them. So, I, but really I was doing sessions in between like touring gigs. And then finally I reached a point where I was like, I'm going to have to take a leap of faith and just stop touring and hope that, that I get enough session work starting to happen. But that's when I also realized that there were the, the, like the era of like being a full-time session drummer was kind of over. Like mm. you, you can do it, but like you ha you're going to still have to go out. All my friends that are successful session drummers still do live work. Right. Um, like even Sean Pelton, who's like one of the most successful session guys still in New York, right. he still has the SNL gig. And when he's not doing SNL, you can catch him playing at the bitter end, or you can catch him like he'll fly to London and play Wembley with Carol King or something. He's always doing live shit. Does Sean play with Oz Noy? Um, he's played with Oz. Yeah. I um, think I saw him play there. I recorded Sean a couple times. Yeah. Oh my drummer. God. Oh, insane. Yeah. yeah. And, um, like really great at what he does and also really carved out a late, like a niche for himself early on. And, um, right. and back to our other point, I remember he listening, we both did this, uh, couple of the same podcasts and I would listen to his interview on one and he was talking about either in high school or college, his teacher had him read psycho cybernetics mm. which is like one of the old school yeah. like personal growth books Great and which i didn't read until my 40s and i was like man i wish i had somebody tell me to read that shit when i was like that young so like i don't think it's a coincidence that sean like his trajectory yeah. started so young but um well, you know, it's a, you bring that up. I mean, we've always been really tight and, and hanging yeah. out like when we were doing records with, you know, Jive for the most part, that's where we spend most of our time. Um, yeah. But we'd always have, and I don't know if you were quite deep into personal development at that point, exactly. but, I wasn't. but you had the intuition of it because we yeah. would just hang out. We would have these deep conversations that were like, I mean, I was always into Tony. A lot of my success was because yeah. of that, yeah. but and other personal development and like your natural um like you're you you've always been on the path whether you realize it or not yeah um, oh, for sure and it's like that's a good point i just wanted to circle back to something that i went off on a tangent like i realized that i couldn't just play drums i would have to tour but i didn't want to tour and and also i was dealing with like a lot of like tendonitis and back issues and um so i was like I'll, I'll lean into the programming thing a little harder, but I realized the working programmers, the most working programmers, people didn't want to pay somebody just to come into a drum beat. They wanted somebody to program the whole track. So I invested some bread and got my whole sequencing thing together. And I was spent buying like synth modules and outboard gear. And I don't know if you remember in my apartment, I had like a Mackie 32 eight bus. Yep. I had like a whole- You know, a rack full of gear too. Like, like multiple 30 space racks. I had yeah. a ton of shit. But that is, and back to Jive, like people would pay me to do a remix or, or to program a full track. And eventually I started kind of carving out that niche of people saying, oh, you do, like you do very spe like specialty drum programming and you play drums. And now to the point where people will have me come in and do both because that's kind of the modern approach. Um, but so yeah. So when you went to Berkeley or prior, did you also have like, could you play piano or guitar or did you have any well, my, other? My father played piano 
and um, so there was always a piano and like an organ in the house I could fuck around on. And I took a little, my senior year of high school, I took music theory, taught me everything I needed to know. I was already playing by ear though, because when I was playing in bands, we would rehearse in my parents' attic and um, people would leave their guitars and basses there. So I would just, I figured out bar chords and I didn't know what a root and a fifth is. I could just kind of hear, you know, you, you just hear your way through right. shit and you figure things out and you start to notice relationships between the strings. And then, um, and so I would, but then taking music theory, I, just learning the names of intervals was everything I needed to know. And then at Berkeley, I took some ear training, which was also a really good thing, like advanced ear training, which was a really good thing for me. Um, but yeah, it's, it's like, I, I, I don't, I am definitely not a keyboard or guitar virtuoso, but the beauty of Pro Tools is I can, I can, <laughs> I can edit, edit it to make it sound like I know what I'm doing more than I do. I mean, my, I have good ears and I, and I can arrange parts. And, um, and if I'm sequencing, I can pretty much do anything. Like I listened back to some of the tracks I was programming in the nineties and early two thousands. It's like, yeah, I sound like a really solid keyboard player, but I'm not, I suck. So, but, uh, <laughs> but awareness is the first step to transformation. Yes. <laughs> so, as you were, you know, doing that, and then, you know, you shared when Sean turned you on to or let you know, you mentioned about psychocybernetics. Yeah. The personal drives of professional is my, my belief, and it doesn't matter yeah. what your professional is. Yeah. Um, how did you start incorporating like that holistic approach to just life to also be more healthy and more grounded and did that affect your performance your writing your producing as you became more self-aware and yeah and, uh, well, growth? yeah well, i want to backpedal when i was at berkeley i blew my hands out I, I like i was it was a very friendly but competitive atmosphere and if you weren't like playing 16 hours a day like you weren't serious, you know, like that was not necessarily the healthiest vibe, but uh, I would be, and this is before they kept backline kits in all the practice rooms. So drummers, we were lugging our entire kit up and down steps, <laughs> set it up for the next ensemble or the next rehearsal or the next gig at night. And I was lugging a full kit. Eventually I, I got smarter and just started doing kick snare hat because I saw uh, <laughs> Zach Alford, who's this pretty successful drummer. Um, no, did you ever work with Zach? Mm -hmm. That's anyway, heavy, heavy resume. Um, and he was already like the cat. He was successful just in Boston. And then he got his first gig and then his, his career really blew up. But uh, right. Zach, I remember walking by an ensemble room and I heard like some of the, like the deepest pocket drumming I'd heard. And I looked in and it was just a guy with a kick snare hat and like a broken cymbal. And I was like, the, the next day I stopped lugging around a full kit. So, but yeah, you're lugging your kid around and then you're doing a gig at night. I would get back to the dorm rooms and I could barely feel my hands, but I would wake up the next day fully restored. And then one day, I think when my growth spurt stopped, because I was a late bloomer, like your body changes and it doesn't re repair itself the same way. And I woke up one day and I could barely move my hands. My back was like locked up. And I went to like a Western doctor, a sports doctor, and they're like, yeah, you're done with drumming. And uh, a friend of mine, who is now a very famous guitar player. Um, at the time, he was like, man, fuck that. Like, like I'm gonna give you the number of a guy, go see him. It's gonna sound really crazy to you with, with, your, with what you grew up in, but 
like go see this guy. And I went to see this guy named Richard Zukowski, who sadly I found out just passed last week. But oh, sorry. he treated a lot of uh, now famous musicians who, who were in Boston at that time. And um, he, he just, he was, he helped me become aware of like what I put into my body. So, so, so my physical health started, like, I don't know if you remember, I was always eating really healthy. Yeah. So he was the guy that was like, what do you eat? And I was like, what does my diet have to do with like my hands? And he's like, everything. And he was like, you got to cut out sugar, red meat, anything processed, dairy, which was pretty much all I ate. So he taught me to like, really think about nutrition, what I put in my body. And he taught me about stretching and the importance of the ergonomic relationship with with a drum set and my body my body i'm like a dancer basically or an athlete you got to take better care and um so that made a huge difference for me but i wish somebody had also said you know but your thoughts also like your mental health you can't just you can't just like take care of your your physical health i mean the way i see it now is mental and physical it's all like yeah, one thing I do. so yeah um, but yeah, I wish somebody had just explained neuroscience to me and said, there's a reason why you have chronic inflammation and like the, like the role of stress and depression and all that shit can play on your body. So that took me another like 20 years to figure out. So, so for a long time, I was like eating the right things and my health did get better and it helped me age better. But I was, it wasn't until like I hit an emotional bottom. Like I had to hit a physical bottom to, to kind of like learn to take care of my body. It wasn't until I hit like a psychological or emotional bottom um, in my late thirties that I finally like started with like, re my, my wife at the time had been begging me to get therapy and I wouldn't hear of it. And she would suggest books now that I live by, but I didn't want to read any of those books. And we've talked about these books before. Yeah. And, um, but yeah, it wasn't until like I hit, I really hit the wall hard that I, it, but it started with a physical illness. I, I had pneumonia that would not go away no matter what. And I tried Western medicine. I tried like really powerful antibiotics. I tried acupuncture and herbs and it wouldn't go away. And so I remembered like reading somewhere that in Asian medicine, different parts of the body or organs correspond with different emotions. And I remember hearing the lungs were associated with grief. And I was like, all right, nothing else is working. This is like, I've had pneumonia for six months. Let me, let me look into this. And that, that was, you know, that was the beginning of me, like, real, like really, once I got into therapy, um, feeling how the effect it had on my, my physical health and then long-term emotional health. And that led me to really, kind of treat personal growth the way I had learning how to play drums. Like you, you, it's, it's not just, it's not just reading. It's not just therapy. It's, it's, it's like a daily practice. Yeah. It's like you're, and the, another person who sadly passed away of, of COVID actually was the therapist that I was with the longest, a guy named Ricardo Castaneda, who he didn't really have a one size fits all approach. The guy was a psychiatrist, a neurologist and a psychopharmacologist. And wow. he, he was pretty funny because he would always say like, I can't tell you who this is, but I have a pay. He's like, you know, they are because his, his, his client list was a lot of like, like presidents and like, wow. almost like, like Tony, like, but not as many like that, but still like if, if anytime you're in his waiting room, you might see like an A-list singer or actor or actress or politician. 
but um, but of his practice was not that. It was just he would treat anybody that that needed help, and um, and he just he just loved helping people. But he but the more curious he was also curious. So if you had some shit that he never dealt with, um, he was really really down to help, and he would find a way to kind of speak your language. So for me, he really related everything to music, and talking about like. He said, when you first sat down at the drum set, you couldn't fathom four-way independence. And he said, but eventually you got to the point where not only could you do four-way independence, you could be like talking to your drum tech on stage in front of 20,000 people telling them to like what you need in your monitor mix and not even paying attention to what your body's doing while you're listening to the rest of the band. It's all happening. Yeah. And he said, he said, your mind is an, is an instrument and you only know like two notes on it. And you've been living your life thinking that that's the full range of your mind. And you really need to learn how to make it resonate and um, like pull all the duct tape off the drum, like the drum head of your, like let your brain resonate. And, and he was, so he was into all that stuff, but he was, he was also into like Buddhist philosophy. And so there was, there was a lot of neuroscience there. There was, there were, were Buddhist practices and there were just like the regular Freudian Jungian psychoanalysis, but um and so in that terms, I do think of it as a daily practice. Right. Um, so. Dude, that yeah. analogy is brilliant. I love it. The, yeah, it was like, great. It, that, that really kind of helped me a lot because I, he wasn't the first therapist I went to. And the first therapist I went to helped me process, just kind of really let a lot of the ice melt of my emotional armor. So I could at least right. kind of even feel things that I had like repressed for so long. Um, but but this guy really he was more of like a scientific approach that really helped me figure a lot of shit out and yeah almost like a personal mental trainer right well and i mean that's what coaches are right so you had basically a therapist that was a coach really that was able to bring in but but the thing is he didn't want to talk about day-to-day shit like coaching like like he we never talked about like what are you doing with your life what he was just more like helping but i but i get Co- the coaching years. style meaning like yeah, to, yeah. to, to well, help yeah. you access your tools yes exactly yes right and and that's all i mean that's the kind of coaching you know that yeah. that i do yeah. and how he does it's helping yeah. you access your tools it's not the the only day-to-day conversation is a reference to what they want to change so yeah exactly yeah theory, so right yeah, and yeah, that, yeah. i wanted to change the state of my, my mental health yeah. yeah now what's interesting is um and i'm sure you've experienced this with some quote uh, crazy artists or eccentric artists that they don't want to heal because their fear is their motivation will go away. I don't know if you, that makes sense. I, I won't name the, the artist, but this one um, like bipolar neurotic needed definitely something, I believe pharmaceutical at least to help them gain some sort of normalcy to be able to figure out how they can manage their own state and they did not want to get any help for fear that it would take away their talent oh you forgot yeah oh there you are here you go okay all right i'm gonna hang up now (laughs) um let me go back to this back yeah so you were just getting into something uh Artists who don't want to heal, I think you were saying. Right, and and so I dealt with one. They'll remain, you know, remain yeah. nameless. Um, that they're they're they would not get the help they could benefit from that they need, for yeah. fear that they wouldn't be able to perform the same way. They would lose their 
um, their edge, their skills, their creativity, and so forth. I have that conversation with my shrink when I started to really okay. <laughs> get over the hump. I remember, because um, I, I had a, a few things going on, but like the reason I reached out was mostly for depression, because I had been mm -hmm. living with, um, the clinical term is dysthymia, for, mm -hmm. since I was like two years old or something, which is just basically, it's not a full on clinical depression, it's like melancholy. And just, uh, just kind of down. And, but on top of that, I was very withdrawn. And um, I, I just kind of just, I always knew something was off, but it was never bad enough for me to do anything about it. And like I said, it was, it was when I was married and not on the road, because all my relationships before that, I was never around often enough to have to be interfacing that often with somebody that could call me out on that. So it was my wife at the time was now a therapist actually. Um, but she, she was like, you really need to deal with this shit. And, um, and I was very stubborn about it. And, um, but I mostly went to start with just to deal with the depression. I remember it was kind of like, um, and there was a lot more to it because depression grew out of like PTSD basically. And so there, there was a lot to deal with. But I remember feeling like it was like the ice was kind of starting to melt and like a little bit of like light would come through. And I remember like just, it would be like less than a minute, but I would all of a sudden feel like a different chemical state. Like I was in a different body for like a minute. And I was like, this is what not being depressed feels like. And then it would go back to depression. And then those little moments of like light getting through would, would happen more frequently and last longer until there was a real shift to where my baseline was, I was okay. I wasn't jumping for joy, but I was probably like at a zero. But when you're used to living well below zero, right. being zero feels amazing, feels like a 10. So um, I remember it switched. And then when that happened, every once in a while, then I would have a depressive episode and they would last long, like days. And then eventually they would last hours and eventually minutes, and then they just stopped. And I remember when I got to that point, when it was still, it was still in the shift where, but I was starting to feel what it feels like to not be depressed. And I also did this without meds. And he, wow. he was a psychopharmacologist and he, he even at one point suggested a short term course of, of uh, antidepressants. He said, just so your brain can get a snapshot of what it feels like to not be so imbalanced. And, um, and I, I just wasn't down to do it. And he said, that's fine. You don't need, to do it, you, you can shift your chemicals naturally over time, but like, we're gonna have to, you're gonna have to come more often. And he lowered his rates so I could come more often. Really good guy. Oh, and, cool. um, and, but I remember when I felt the shift and it really, I started to really feel it. And I, I had this like a little bit, not a full on freak out, but I was like, I started looking at myself and saying, who am I? Like so much of my persona was built off of being like a doom and gloom person or actually i was always kind of optimistic but i still just my world felt like just yeah i know what you mean yeah and i was like if i'm not like am i am i gonna do i want to do music like did i really want all these tattoos was it, it was everything i did in my life a reaction to feeling the way i felt and i remember i brought that up to him at a therapy session and he laughed and he said that's he said this is very common i treat a lot of artists and this is one of those times like i can't tell you who but he's a really very the most famous like horror movie writer. And I'm thinking like, is he talking about Stephen King? Who's he talking about? And he's like, I can't tell you who it is, but I've been treating this guy for years. And when he 
got over like lifelong depression, he was like, am I going to be able to make a living anymore? Like, can I still write dark movies? Right. Or direct. I don't know if it's a writer or director, but, um, and, and I was like, so what's the answer? And he said, who cares? The answer is, are you happy? Who gives a fuck? He said, you got to be open to like, just be open to spontaneity and like with, with, with the unknown and just like, because you know, the whole thing, like the whole like man can never step in the same river twice. He would always drop these analogies, but um, he said, yeah, like so much of, of your life was reactionary and like, but none of it was like, just be spontaneous, live a creative life. Don't live like a defensive life. Just be creative, see what's happening. And he said, probably you're still going to do music and you're still going to be you. You'll just be a happier version of you. So, which, and he was right. So, yeah. Well, and that's such a, the reason why I ask is I think a lot of people, they attach their identity to that, yeah. that Dark. whatever. Yeah. And then yeah. if they lose that, like, that's part of me. And, and there's actually a grieving process to that. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's just so powerful that you're able to continue to push through and stay present because yeah. you're still wolf. You're, yeah. you're still awesome. You're still all of that. Now you just have more access to yeah. more of who you are. Yeah. Which actually ultimately, so, so then my question then comes, did, did you notice a shift in your playing, in your production, in your oh, sorry, writing? You asked me about that before, sorry. Yeah, no, no, I, well, it was a two, it was a two phase um, question. Yes and no. Um, I, I think becoming more present and um, it's also a lot of things are like mixed blessed, like blessing and a curse or a double-edged sword. Um, like all the pro all the chronic inflammation forced me to, to simplify my playing. Mm -hmm. But at the time, and I fought that, I had an internal like subconscious battle with that for years, judging myself. Because the truth is, is now I can't stand drummers who overplay, even though I, I was an overplayer <laughs> for a long time. But I just was, I couldn't let go of like, I couldn't get over the fact that I went from somebody who could play like Michael Jordan-esque level drums, just like, you know, super drumming, to the to somebody who could I could still pull out some moves, but um, most of the, the the higher level work I do, it's about less is more. Right. But I was still had a part of myself that was still judging and fighting and just couldn't make peace with with like being somebody who's a different guy. It's like, okay, you were that guy, now you're not. And who cares? Because you don't even like that aesthetic musically anymore. But <laughs> Between that and like being forced to make a change and also becoming more present, like I started thinking less in terms, and this also happened just naturally through doing production and programming where I started seeing the big picture. I stopped thinking in terms of what would be a cool drum part, but like what serves the song best. And so a big part of that is being more present and like not being stuck in my head as much. And that being said, I was a pretty present musician. And I, yes. even when I was overplaying, I, I was still, trying to tastefully doing it yeah but <laughs> maybe like 90 percent of me was present and 10 percent of me was like okay i gotta impress the other drummers listening to this record so i need to throw some now like that's gone right. it's just <clears throat> what serves the song and um and yeah and i don't have as much baggage so i'm like i'm i think any decision i make whether it's musical or otherwise is coming from a healthier like right. um present place so and then what? as far as my, my career, because uh, it's not that I'm more successful, it's that um, 
it's that I can stay out of my own way. And like, I used to have this thing about self-promotion and, um, and money, you know, like all these things that like, I mean, I, I've always been financially stable, but I grew up without, and this is again, not until I got into like examining myself, did I become aware of this, but I grew up with like this narrative that money is bad. And I also had this narrative, but I also had this narrative that it's not good to not be financially stable because I had a parent that was horrible with money. So well, that's a pickle. I, yeah. So it was like, <laughs> I always, but, but so I created this narrative where I'm always going to be okay, but I'm not going to be like better. Okay. I've, I've lived well. So, <laughs> but like I have two brothers that like, they make a lot more money than me. Um, at least I assume they do just based, we've never talked about it, but, right. um, and I have friends, you know, like people that, you know, too, in music that are like multimillionaires and billionaires. And it's like, they didn't have any kind of like subconscious limiting narrative, to, like blocking them from, you know, and it, it's, it's never just one thing. It's like you, any type of thing you do, you can connect the dots to, to the, right. to the decision or the, the conversation that, that blocked you from manifesting whatever it is. So, um, so I've been learning more and more. And the thing is, I still like, I never got into to music to be rich. I just was like, I want to do what I love and be comfortable, which I, I've been very fortunate to, mm -hmm. to, to be living that, for, you know, since I was basically a teenager. So, um, and it's like, so not that I don't want to be rich now, but I'm open to it. Like, but I, it's still like, I don't care, but there's, at least there's nothing blocking me from if, right. I, if I ever want to, and the truth is, is you're never going to get rich as a side man. Like, I mean, right. you can make a lot of money, but, but it's like, that's the part of me that's, oh, that doesn't have that thing. Oh, I have to make all my money as a drummer. Like I've let go of that. Like I'm right. fine if I want to make more income doing something else. So um, there's that. And then also the self-promotion thing, not for, it's a, too long to get into, but for some shit that I grew up around, I had this thing about like, you don't want to self-promote and you kind of want to do you want to do good work but stay hidden so like i was subconsciously kind of keeping myself in the shadows while consciously thinking like why am i not more in the spotlight so i was right. definitely working against myself so that um that was a huge shift i i just kind of like stopped blocking myself in, in those two areas interesting and, I, and at the same time um slowly yeah because I, in the last few years, I like I have had money come in that wasn't coming from drumming, and it was good money. And it's like I don't care if it wasn't from drumming. Um, I mean, I'm still doing music full time, but it was just I have a skill set in in other areas that somebody offered me money, and I took it. So, um, and I do other the areas meaning not music related or just not as a drummer. Oh um, no, not music. Okay, because I a lot of my once I stopped touring, a lot of my music money is not playing drums, it's programming, it's producing, right. it's mixing. And, and yeah. I, some of my biggest paychecks have been just publishing from, from co-writes. Right. So, right. Um, but no, just uh, completely not music. But it's, 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 a, it's basically a skill set I developed from, from therapy. And like, you know, so it's basically a form of coaching and we can talk about this later. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it's around the same time. Yeah, I kind of like let go of of my my like the the need to like my identity is I'm a drummer, I'm a musician, right. and that and also at the same time letting go of the the narrative that like 
I should be comfortable, but I shouldn't have too much extra money. And now I'm like, I don't care. Like I'm, I'm open. To right. That. You don't like, care in a good way. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, and then, yeah. And then also like n that whole thing about keeping myself in the shadows while working, like I let go of that. So, well, um, and it's, really powerful because I think a lot of times that's where quite honestly one of my struggles growing like through the industry is um, I would see some people self-promoting and yeah. you know the, the first thing that we'd be at a party and they'd be like hey talk you know like me 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 yeah. me me and let me tell you more about me and now that I'm done talking about me what do you know about me and yeah. I was just like oh my gosh it's, I hate that like that so going out and getting gigs and all that I'd be you know kind of like you and that well my work is going to speak for itself. You know, like, yeah, yeah. You know, that record, I did that. So, you know, that's, yeah, that's me. Um, and then I went and, you know, I got a manager because I wanted someone else to do my promoting. Uh, but we live in a day now where it's not that, you know, we, we all have to be self promoters. Well, yeah. well, social media, I mean, for, for music, every business, but really for music, it's just changed the game completely where it's like, I don't have a choice. I, I got on Instagram originally just because I had to, to, to see certain content, but I never, like the first couple of years I was on there, I didn't post. I posted like once a year <laughs> and, and I've had to like kind of get more comfortable with posting more often. And I'm still like, I'll make a draft and I'm like, okay, I got to post something about this record this week. But Every time I'm about to post, I'm like, oh, I just get there's still that resistance, and I'll yeah. be like, that's always like, fuck it, I'll post yeah. it. And that's with practice, that's getting easier to just push it out there. So, but yeah, there's still part of me. It's finding that balance because you don't want to be that person that's just like me, 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 check me out. But you also don't want to be the person that's like, yeah, my work speaks for itself. Like, yeah, yeah just no, because if no one will see it, I mean, it's exactly. I'll share a quick thing when I was leaving uh, working with Tony. He was yeah. like, look, dude, because you're not a coach. You're not a speaker. You're not a trainer. You're not an author. You are a marketer of your speaking, coaching, training, <laughs> books. And, yeah. you know, another word for marketing is promotion. And yeah. it, that is such a struggle sometimes, especially for people who are like giving, caring, empathetic yeah. people to, yeah. to come from a place of like, oh, yeah, like, you know, let's talk. I mean, most of this show, you know, is to celebrate other people, to help other people. But I also know that if I don't promote it, no one's going to see it. Exactly. No yeah. one's going to listen. No one's going to get the benefit of the wisdom you're sharing right now if no one knows about it. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy world we live in, like just our minds. So let's let's get into like some timing on on now. So COVID hit. What yeah. were you doing? I'm listening, but I'm getting more water. But okay, so the, the the question will be when you return is how how did you deal with um, or what was happening when COVID was, you know, when the lockdowns and all that crazy stuff, you know, to put a timestamp on this conversation, because I, for for me and many of the people in, in in the speaking world, which is very similar to the entertainment world, where there's gigs and there's reasons for people to get together and seminars and and all of that. Did you have events, gigs, productions, tours, anything coming up that got abruptly uh, curtailed? Yeah. Yes and no, because I do so much remote work. And the thing is, the music, a, a lot of people that didn't have like remote recording abilities are now out of necessity getting that together. Right. But I was always doing a lot of that. And um, so 
that didn't change, but what did change is a lot of projects that I knew were on the horizon, a lot of people pay, especially indie artists now, and with the way, with the, with the shift with how music is like uh, packaged and sold, I mean, it's virtual packaging for the most part now. Right. Um, you can be an indie artist and compete with major label artists. You're seeing more and more of that. So a lot of indie artists, they support themselves and their recording budgets through gigs. And so that's stopped. So the majority, except for certain wealthy recording artists or, or then the, we've all done vanity projects. You know what I mean? Like those things can still happen if, if like there's family money involved, whatever. But so, but in general, like most work, just most recording work just stopped. And cause I wasn't really doing live. I would do occasionally like live things in LA or New York with friends, but I haven't been like a live drummer or except for Osnoy, we talked about him. Like, yeah. And I only did those gigs with Oz because he was like, this is how we do pre-production for my record. We basically <laughs> rehearse the material at the bitter end every week. That's so awesome. yeah, and the bitter ends like five minutes from my house. Yeah. Not a problem. So, um, but yeah, so the live work thing didn't affect me, but everything else slowed down, shut down. And then there was one project which I actually had to sign an NDA. I can't talk about, mm -hmm. but that was supposed to be a really cool thing potentially very lucrative and that was going to start in the, the summer it got pushed back to the fall and now it's clearly not happening in the fall so i don't know i don't know when it's happening but uh so yeah uh, my definitely like all of the work i do shifted or, or not just shifted it almost all of it just stopped and then mm. what little there is and I, I did like a print interview recently um, about like what checking with different drummers during the lock, like the quarantine. Um, and I said like a lot, I'm doing a lot of like work now that's just purely for collaborative reasons. Cause a lot of friends that are normally everybody's busy doing other shit and make busy making money. We all have time. And then friends of mine that are, you know, normally on the road and don't never had a home recording rig. They're now doing home recording rigs and it's like, Hey, let's just, do some shit, send some shit back and forth. Right. Or there are indie artists that want me to work on something and I just know they don't have the money right now. So I, have, I haven't worked on spec in years, but it's like now it's like, yeah, I'll do some shit on spec. And it's, and you know, and, and that's another thing. Like I, I've never take, I've never been on unemployment before. And then when this happened, I didn't even think I could get unemployment because I was not, you know, as, yeah. Not getting a paycheck from any one place. And then a bunch of my music friends were like, dude, get on it. There's this, there's the, the pandemic assistance, the, the Fed money, just get it. And I signed up for it. And it was like, oh, this is cool. This is definitely helping in the meantime. Right. And, um, and then it's, yeah, and I hope they extend it. And I know they're still negotiating to extend it, but they're, they're not just the music industry, the event industry. There's so many industries where, where, like people are just out of work indefinitely. So, um. it, it, so for some of your, and I, I like, I haven't gotten a chance and maybe you can hook me up to, cause I spoke to D and, and stuff, but I, I don't, I, I'm so far out removed from the industry that I, it's only the old, you know, the OGs that I'm, I'm still okay. you know, contacted okay. with. Um, but I'd love to, and, and maybe you could have some insight and, and maybe a referral or something. The, the younger artists now that, so much of their psycho remuneration where like the, the purpose they did it was for the playing yeah. live and getting the adoration and, 
and all that. Like, what are they doing now to create that energy? Because it's that's something that's a loss that is also not a complete loss because there's hope, but when? Like so much uncertainty. There's hope, but there's also the social media thing. You know, I mean, like I have friends that are in bands that they're doing, people are doing their COVID bubbles. Like people right. that they, they can be around without masks, without social, socially distancing. Um, and I'm seeing that with certain artists that, that I've worked with that, that they are doing like streaming events just right. from a friend of mine. I think she's doing something today no, that's actually, I think she's going to be hosting it today, but they actually filmed something. Remember Euphoria Rehearsal Studios in New York? Yeah. It's an artist I work with, Drea, and she, Osnoy played on it, and Ray Angry is, she usually uses a full band, but she just used those two guys. And um, and I talked to her right before that. She was like, yeah, we're going to go to Euphoria. Euphoria is set up. It's like super sanitized. And and I was like, what about masks? And she's like, well, Ray and I have already had COVID. We're not wearing masks. And we're far enough apart, but she was like, yeah, Oz might wear a mask. And, but even be, like, there's that. And then other people that are just every day going live. And I right. think they're just do that so they can still get some of that. It's not the same thing as performing in front of an audience, but if you have, you know, if you have that like feedback, even if it's just like line, you know, lines of right, yeah, a couple of comments or likes, yeah. Yeah, or there, one of the records that, that just came out um, with, that Billy Mann produced, it just came out and the guy's getting a shitload of press and he's a big artist and he's another like example of somebody you don't need to make. He was signed to Interscope, but he got signed to Interscope and I could be getting some of this wrong, but he was a YouTube sensation with like hundreds of millions of views. Wow, yeah. um, and but very talented. Um, I believe Billy is also his manager. I think I okay. could be getting it wrong, cool. but um, this uh, kid, Alex, I don't know, insanely talented and plays a bunch of instruments, uh, sit, sings really well, writes, produces his own shit. Um, and he's, he's very self-contained and he makes good video content himself too. And also a good looking guy. He's like really like a marketer's dream for like a young pop artist. Right. And, um, and so I, th I think they got out of the Interscope deal because it's like, what do you need a label for when the label is like giving you such a shitty deal? Right. You know, it's the only business model where like the, the, the marketing company takes like 85% of, of, you know, it's so, and then not only that, like they're making these judgment calls to say, well, we're going to spend this on this and we're going to do this. And you, and also this is your money because until we recoup this, you're not going to see, see it. Right. So, and it's like, <laughs> so wait, okay, I don't get a well, say in any of this. Can I look at the budget? I'm like, nope. Yeah, exactly. But that's the thing. It's like, well, this kid already was reaching more people than your marketing department's reaching on his own on YouTube. So what does he need you for? So anyway, he, and that, that turned into like a huge international following where he can tour the world every year and sell out shows because he just has this, this organic grassroots fan base. And so when we were recording the record, it was, it was December and I had just gotten over a horrible respiratory thing, which I'm pretty sure was an early version of COVID before we knew that it was COVID. And, um, I remember they were talking about how he's going to tour the record because it's a very unique record, the way we, the production approach with the instrumentation. And, um, and yeah, right now he's getting like a lot of love in the press, really great reviews, um, online stuff. It's in print. And normally he'd be out on the road 
promoting it and right. and he can't do that now so he's 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 on instagram live all the time and with huge numbers and i think that's to to go back to your to your question i think that's what a lot of artists are doing it's um it's it yeah it helps you stay engaged with your audience and right um I, what did you say remuneration i think psycho remuneration so like, like yeah they're just yeah, 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 it makes it, yeah, yeah, what you yeah. get. It, it yeah, good. I, will add, I will add to my vocabulary. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think there's that. And I think it's also just for marketing purposes, like you have a new record out, you want, you want your fans to, to know about it and hear it and you want to expose new people to it. And so, yeah, you're just, since you can't be out playing clubs and I guess he can do some TV, you know, just streaming from wherever, but yeah, I, it's just like I, I'm sure he wasn't planning on this was he was going to do the pr promotional tour, you know, right. from from his living room. So, um, and it's a lot of artists are dealing with the same thing. So, yeah, I think social media that's one of those areas where that does fill some of that gap. Right. For, and, um, and unfortunately, it doesn't fill the the rest of the uh, yeah. the infrastructure. The you know all the basically the people who put the the tour together there's all the yeah. other tour managers the crew the oh man it feels so horrible for everyone yeah the traveling crew and then the local crew and the, yep. lo uh, the local support of the venues the menus themselves the, the 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 concessions at the venues and yeah it's just like an endless list of of industry. actually you mentioned sean and and snl i i haven't really i know it's been years actually since i've actually paid attention to snl just for getting old not staying up late um yeah. Are they like, is that band and are they still like, are they doing something? I think from what I remembered, like the last, and I know Seth Meyers band is doing it this way. They're doing it from home and sending all their shit in. And then whoever, I guess whoever was the person in the, in the control room that was like uh, blending all the camera feeds and, and mixing sound is now just doing that virtually. Okay. So, so the sad thing is the the entire crew is not working because those, those shows have makeup artists, hair, mm -hmm. makeup, there's the cater caterers at NBC or whatever network. Um, there are the pages at the show. There there's the, the carpenters, the, the set, the set builders, the yeah. painters, um, and the drivers getting the talent back and forth, the hotels that, that are putting the, the guest artists up, and the whole sub and um, but from what i remember i think the snl band they 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 just had them all play like uh remotely play the theme song okay and, um, now is technology caught up yet that they can do it live I together real, i don't think it's in real time i could okay. be wrong and i actually want to ask because the seth meyers show which I, you know they have a guest drummer thing which i did yeah. a couple of years ago yeah. so for a while because Seth Myers is basically I think they're gonna be they might be back in the studio I'm not sure but for the most part I think Seth Myers is filming from home the interviews are like zoom interviews yeah. and then um the musical guests can do their thing from wherever and um and Fred Armisen was just back as the house drummer and they were all doing their shit separately but I don't think it was in real time but I want to ask because they went back to the guest drummer thing and a friend of mine nikki was i think their first guest drummer back and i've actually been meaning to hit her up and ask her because i saw that she was doing it from her home 
but I wanted you to have ask your kid all ready to go set up at yours. Uh, I don't have a drum set here. I'm at my girl's place in LA. So oh, okay. basically I've been by coastal for a while. And, um, but since things got serious with, with my girlfriend, the place I usually stay, which is a, my friend Luke's place in Hollywood. Um, I got my stuff from there. And so I have a programming rig here at my girl's place. So basically when we're in New York, we live at my place. You've been, you know, my place on yeah. 12th street. Yep. And then here we're, we're um, I'm at her place. And um, I can't play drums in the apartment. I can't, I am going to get a V drum set. I didn't get one because I have a V drum kit in my place in New York, but I didn't think that I just, I kind of thought we'd be like past the quarantine phase by now. But <laughs> I, I know we all, I think everyone thought that yeah. like, oh, this can't be more than three months. Yeah. So it's like, I have a practice pattern here and I have I, I, I talked to a studio that I've worked at out here before and I said when it gets to the point where budgets start opening up where I can book time to track drums I'll usually do that in New York at a place called Mission Sound in Williamsburg you ever, mm -hmm. you ever work at Mission? Yeah mm -hmm. so I'll work with Oliver at Mission that's like my second home in New York and then here there's a place uh, Ultimate Studios where it's, it's just like Mission that the owner and engineer is a drummer has a great drum collection. And um, so he's, yeah. And so it's like, at a certain point, I'll be able to go there and play drums there. But uh, I need something here because this is the longest I've gone without playing drums on a regular right. So Do, do you play air drums? That I know like hanging out with Joe Franco, like yeah. even when we're sitting there having lunch, he'd be just sitting there air playing and like hitting his legs and, and, and just, is yeah. that, I, I never noticed you doing that. Yeah, no, I, I don't. I don't need it the same way. And honestly, when I, when I started taking breaks from drumming, like a week off the kit does, does it, it's good for me. And yeah. it goes back to the whole being present and not relying on a bag of tricks and just like what is going to make the most sense for the music I'm playing right now. Right. And, um, but it's been months. So, and, and I have gotten calls to play live drums on stuff, but again, budgets are so much lower now that it's like, there's, Enough money for me to make any money and pay the studio to book the oh, studio right. for a few hours. Yeah. So for that stuff, I'll refer it to like, um, do you remember Nier, the Israeli drummer? Uh -huh. used to Nier. Yeah. So Nier is in Nashville. He's got an amazing home studio. So he sent, sent and the producer, one of the producers that called me for live drums, he works with Nier too. And I was like, dude, I, I have no drums here. And he's like, all right, I'll call him Nier. And, um, because it was a record we were working on already where I was programming, but they wanted one live track. And he's like, can you do it? I was like, I can program a fake live track, but if you want like, real live drums, call near. And um, so yeah, over the years, when, when stuff would come to me that it wasn't enough to cover my time and the studio, I would always like refer to like near or like Brian Tishy or a number of other guys that I know have really great home like studio sounds. Well, and one of the things I just want to notice and, and I want to acknowledge you for is whether you realize it or not, everything that you've done has prepared you for yeah. an issue, right? Like yeah. you didn't realize getting in and doing the uh, programming so early, but the fact that you were willing to do that when yeah. things got a little bit weird, you were way ahead of everybody else. Yeah, for sure. And yeah. same thing with the studio now, having all that and like everything that you've done, it's like you've other than consciously had an awareness of what, what would serve you the best? Yeah, no, get definitely remote recording, and you you helped prepare me for remote recording because, like, you you were 
you more than anybody else, and I definitely relied and I owe a debt of gratitude to a number of engineers, but you were my go-to. And it would only be if it was like five in the morning or something and I knew I couldn't call you. I'd be like, okay, who do I know in LA? Yeah. <laughs> <All> right, <now. laughs> Who's just going to bed? <laughs> so, um, but yeah, no, you helped prepare me for that. Like remote recording, what, I got into it really early on and now that that's the new normal. And, yeah. and I'm definitely going to curve with that. So. Well, I remember yeah. when, when the studio started closing, when Dream Factory closed, when, you know, even all the bigger studios in the, yeah. in the city were closing, uh, what we were doing, what, you know, I had a studio in my house and I yeah. think even, did I, no, I think I mixed everything. We did, we actually didn't, we, it wasn't quite that bad yet where we had to do it at, you know, everything at home. But yeah. for a while, the kind of the end of my doing music all the time was we would go into cove or pie or power station or whatever and just bang out a, a drum track and a bass and you know see what we could get in the basics whatever we could keep then go to each each person would go home and say, I'm, I'm gonna add those guitar tracks i'm gonna add the vocals i'm gonna and we did it all separately and yeah. then i ended up you know i would mix it in my house i had a studio yeah. in my house as well yeah um, and that's been that's been going on for a long time um, yeah that, that, yeah and most of the biggest mixers that i know in the pop world have their own setup and a lot of them are, are mixing in the box like 100 yep. percent so it's uh but yeah the 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 producers that i've worked with the most were also doing a lot of shit on their own like um too many yeah i'm don't want to start dropping names now but like a lot of the guys i know that 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 are still in an era where it's getting more and more difficult to make a living if you're not the flavor of the month um but if you but if if you have a certain skill set together and and enough of, of like a track record you could still be relevant and still be working and my friends that are doing that who are all names who have you know at one time maybe been like the guy and now but they're still like not the flavor of the month now they, they're still cranking workout and it's because they all got the home studio thing together yeah um, and granted those those home studios are probably pretty significant um, yes. Well, some more than others. I mean, yeah. I, I have to say, like, um, talking, like we were talking, I mentioned my friend Luke before, Dr. Luke. Yeah. Um, he, for his first run of, like, back-to-back -back number one hits, he was doing it all in his basement studio on 21st Street in New York and not, like, you know, I he had some... That. I think I worked at that. You probably have. You've probably Luke, yeah. been there. Yeah. And, um, and I was, and the thing is, I was doing programming for that stuff on my digital one, like, I think that's when I had 32 tracks of Pro Tools because right, yeah. I had like the expansion. But, and this, and this was also because I refused to get a newer Pro Tools rig. After Pro Tools 5, the, the MIDI D clock wasn't as consistent or something like that. I remember for whatever reason, I was like, I'm not switching. So I was like using a really antiquated version of Pro Tools on a really antiquated rig with like what would be considered, like an audio file would say I had a crap, crappy gear, but it's like, I'm hearing this shit on the radio right now. So right. fuck it, working. <laughs> but that being said to your point, yeah, my, my friends, I'm thinking of, do you ever work with Yaron? Mm -hmm. Is it, he's like, um, so his, I want to say it's in Westchester, but it's, you know, it's, it's out of the city, his home studio. And he's, he's like a spokesperson for Abbott. And they just, he, they just did like a zoom thing where he was, I think it was Yaron, his assistant Spencer and, uh, Michael Brower, one another like big name yeah. mixer, 
like his his home studio is easily as good as any like state of the art studio anywhere. So, but um, well, and it's so funny how technology it, it, we experienced. I know you. It's a word that is uh, overused. Disruptor. You know, like Uber disrupted yeah. the taxis and Airbnb yeah. disrupted the hotels. Man, Pro Tools and and uh, digital performer yeah. and and all yeah. of those that disrupted the music industry like nothing ever like we we didn't even have a word for it except for what the f yeah it's uh it definitely did and um yeah because yeah you would you you probably were trained to work with tape just like my first yeah yeah i was cutting tape originally yeah yeah that's all that (coughs) i don't i can't remember the last time i did a session of tape well, you know, it's funny, I had Richie Kanata uh, on like two weeks ago, and one of the things that they're promoting at Cove is he's got tape. And he's like, hey, come and like experience. It, it's almost like going on like the cruise, like you got, oh, it's on tape, really? You know, it's actually, it's a cool thing. Cause I, I think for some that's like, wow, I, it's that a novelty. you did it? Yeah, it's a novelty and I get it. And I, I think the last tape session I did was because there was an artist who was obsessed with like a certain era of like Led Zeppelin. And he was like, all right, I got to find a room that has, I don't know if it was APIs or whatever. He was like, the board has to be this, it's got to be tape. And I need to use this, these amps, these mics, these drums. And it, he just, he was like, yeah, that's what I want. So we did it. But that was probably over 10 years ago. So Yeah. I, but it, it also brings me to like further down, if I recall, after all that happened and then record companies started closing, I was, I was with uh, our management was part with, you know, Brian Doyle and uh, those guys with um, uh, Hall and Oates. And they were like, Hall and Oates, the first million that each of them made was on the, o- the only record they ever made from, from record sales was the record they sold the least of on their own label. Like they were like, well, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? Yeah, and then, yeah, yeah. Same thing with Hanson. They were like, ah, dude, we, you know, we, we, we sell like, you know, tiny amounts comparatively, but we yeah. make more money than ourselves. Yeah. 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 And it, what you shared earlier, I remember some bands that they got to a certain point, you're talking about the, this new artist, they got to a certain point on their own, you know, making great money, touring fantastically, yeah. they get signed to a major label. And, and also, <laughs> yeah, they just, yeah. Because the label couldn't get them to where they they were, and then yeah. they couldn't take them to the next level. Yeah, I'm like I'm kind of biting the hand that feeds me. But like when when all this the shift started happening, and I saw I, like labels had to consolidate, and budgets started dropping. It was definitely affecting my like income negatively. But I was happy because I just watched. I always thought like just the basic structure of like a record deal was was bullshit. And just watching over the years, like how artists are treated by labels. And that, I mean, look, when people went and bought physical product, there was so much money. The, Everybody the, was happy. I was so huge that even if you got like this bullshit, like unfair, tiny amount of the pie, you were living large. Yep. And, but it was never a fair deal. And um, so, yeah, I was kind of happy to see. And then when they when they shifted to CDs and then they started charging more for CDs, which were way less expensive to manufacture. But and they didn't they still have the R&D clause in the contract where they like they would take more from artists because, oh, well, you're paying part of your we need to recoup R&D into to this new technology, which was right. 
Wompat, all these like ways they were just robbing yeah. people. And um, they, it was just harder and harder. To, and, and oh, and then it was like, you know, the early, the early pioneers of, of like record company owners in the suits were people that were passionate about music. And then all of a sudden, year, decades later, it's people that graduated with a degree in music business, whatever. And so they're, they're, they're thinking in terms of products and, and what's called a widget or whatever. It was yeah. like, it's no longer just about like developing an artist. So a lot of artists that are now like titans and I icons, their first three records like tanks, but you know, or it's like Seinfeld, like the first couple seasons, they, they needed yeah. somebody to believe in them and keep developing it. And then all of a sudden I started seeing you, you could be an artist that like the labels are like bidding for you. They tell you that you're everything if your first record doesn't deliver or, or if the A&R person that, that was in your corner like leaves all of a sudden they're like, Oh, you're a tax write off later for you. Right. And, and, and they were, so, I, I, and I was still, I was still going and buying a lot of music partially because I love music and partially because I always need to stay current, especially as yep. a programmer, because that's yep. where the sounds are constantly changing. So there used to be a version megastore. I would go there and I would drop at least a hundred bucks a week on CDs. And I, I can't tell you how many times I was so pissed off because I would drop like 20 bucks on, on a CD from an artist because I needed, I really wanted to cop like the, the, the vibe, the production on this one song. It turns out, the song that I'd heard on the radio was a remix and the, right. so on the record and the rest of the record was filler because at that point the labels were all about singles, singles, singles. We need a yep. single. And so I was like, man, they're charging consumers way too much. They're ripping off the artists and they're putting out bullshit. So, so you, I, now when, you wonder why people started stealing it. Exactly. And that's the thing. Like people were complaining about Napster. I was like, fuck it. The labels brought this upon themselves and eventually the technology will like find its way and it's, it's been happening. And, and yeah, I'm not, I think company like Spotify's and Apple music, like maybe they could take better care. They could, but I, from what I understand, they are still paying a decent rate. It's that the labels are still having artists locked into these contracts where the, where the artists and th their share is so small and the writer's share is so small. Right. But, well, um, I, I think the good news, again, I guess we, we can look for the, the silver lining is that it's forcing some transformation, some repositioning, yeah. some, okay, in order for us all to survive, we're going to have to restructure the way we do business because yeah. we, we can't be doing it the way it, it was. Well, it's just, it's I, not sustainable. I think all labels are now, for the most part, are marketing companies anyway. Right. So, um, so yeah, I don't know, but yeah, I don't, and I don't know where the music industry is going to go. Like even even if the pen, even if there's a the vaccine tomorrow and the world goes back to the way it was, I don't know what the recording industry, the record industry, touring is. I think going to be what it is when it's yeah. safe to tour again. But as far as like, you know, I mean, I haven't listened to the radio in years. Like, I but I used to I used to every week not only buy records, I would just like listen to hours of like modern rhythm radio, mm -hmm. uh, modern rock radio, modern hip hop, R&B, and like, and then like some of the Hispanic stations to stay on top of the reggaeton tracks or whatever. Yeah, and now- Wow, I, such an interesting thing. Yeah, cause streaming, you know- the, I, I, I go to Apple Music or Spotify and I just check certain playlists of new music this week in different genres. And that's how I can always make sure that my sample library is current because I'll, I'll, I'll just, I gotta be on top of certain trends and, um, 
and like adjust my my sample library accordingly. So, um, but yeah, I but I don't I don't do that with radio anymore. It's all streaming. Wow. Yeah. Side question: uh, Have you seen We Are Twisted, Effing Sister yet? No, I'm assuming that's a documentary. Yes, and it's it's a documentary of the Twisted Sister days before they got signed. Oh no shit. So it's everything that happened until they actually got signed. Nothing about, you know, Stay Hungry, any of the, yeah. you know, the, the, the album. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. how many times they got shot down and told they sucked. And, oh. and, and I, I don't remember if it was Doug Morris or who was uh, president at the time. But the reason why it's called Twisted F and Sister, We Are Twisted F and Sister, is uh, whoever the president of the label was, because uh, Randy Jackson was like, you guys got to, you know, because yeah. they were on Atlantic Zebra. And like, you got to do this. And they're like, the, the president, and it might have been Doug or not, said, if you bring me that band, Twisted fucking Sister again, you're yeah. fired. And wow. told everybody in there that, and it was Atlantic that actually said that. And the A&R guy that actually signed him was from England. And wow. he came over and saw him. I was like, what is this? Brought it to me. He's like, didn't you know what I said about that? He goes, dude, like, no, no, no. You want to, yeah. Do you want to make money or not? Yeah. Um, but like their, their story, I think you'd really get a kick out of. And I, I as a personal development tool, I yeah. share it and I tell all my clients to, to watch it because it shows how important it is to just believe in yourself and yeah. just keep doing it. Just, just keep at it. And yeah. I'm, I mean, we've all experienced that. I've, I've not with that, but I'm going to watch that. Thanks for that. But I, I've, I'm sure you've had the same talk with musicians and friends. I have friends that are like, they've gotten even one friend that got a major label deal beating all the odds, but that fell apart. And they're like, I'm quitting, I'm quitting music. And I'm like, listen, like, and I, and I'll, I'll send them a copy of the Beatles, the famous Beatles rejection letter was saying, <laughs> Not only was it so like they missed the mark by saying like this band sucks, but also guitar music is a passing fad. Like, <laughs> it was just like, they, like I don't know who the who the, the person was who wrote that letter, but they they like how once like after 1964 they were probably like, you know how self doubt after that must have been huge, but. Um, yeah. There's that, but then also like uh, I went. I don't know if you, you ever worked with Layla Hathaway, but she's now a huge, multiple Grammy winning um, singer. But I went to Berkeley with her and her sister Kenya, and um, I always use Layla as an example because she was Donny Hathaway's daughter. So right there, music royalty, and uh, good-looking, amazing singer, and like and really well trained because being at Berkeley and I was like this person is a star they're going to be huge as soon as they leave Berkeley and I remember she got she got a major label deal and I remember seeing her on on doing some tv and I was like and I was psyched I was like yeah they're they're like she's gonna blow up but she didn't it just she she maintained a career but it was it was never like it was just building up a cult following and also having certain advocates like CB wonder and Prince were big fans and Prince would have her open up, but um, still like she never became a household name. And then like 25 years later, she sang on the snarky puppy record and she did this one thing where she sang a harmonic, like two notes at once. It's kind of like, I think like tube and throat singing, that kind of thing. And the video of that went viral and 
also that performance won a Grammy. And then it also is one of these like an overnight sensation, but no, no, she, she had been signed to a major label, had been like doing her thing for decades, but just that was things kind of finally came together for her. And then since, and then I think for like the next few years, she won multiple Grammys every year. And then was also like an A-list, like, I don't know if she's, cons if she's categorized as like jazz or R&B or both, but like she now is in the place that she rightfully deserves. Mm. But uh, it's like she, if she had given up after her, like her first record didn't do as well as the label had, had hoped and she, you know, and like things didn't, you know, whatever. It's just like, so I always use her as an, as an example. Like she just did her thing and she did it for the right reasons. And you know, she's, she's a musician. She had to keep doing it. But, the, but I love that it's not quite the same thing as like facing rejection. And like with what you're talking about with Twisted Sister, where they were like, no, what we do, we do really well. We're going to keep doing it. Yeah. Well, and, but the thing is, I think ultimately it's our internal dialogue or internal narrative, like you were sharing earlier, that takes us out of the game. Yeah. And it's, you, we already have, there's enough external stuff coming in to give us excuses anyway. And that's the purpose of why, you know, even created this show is to show that everybody has all the same stuff going on outside, especially now there's things that happen, but it's what we, how we process it, what decisions we make, what we think about it, what are we believing that prevent us or not from making the next thing happen yeah. um, and to keep pressing on because there are people who, you know, I'm sure you've seen who took way less negative yeah. feedback and use as an excuse to give up. Yeah. And um, yeah. And some of the, some of the most successful people I've seen are not necessarily the best at what they do, but it's they're, they're, they're the most persistent. Yeah. And um, yeah, cause that goes back to like, and I won't get too, too, too deep into it just to, for the sake of time. But um, my mother was an extremely talented visual artist, but I remember her saying she would kind of always um, have a bit of sadness about like the people when she, I guess when she went to art college, she was the 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 she was like the one like right. i think he was one of the, the most talented people and then she had people her contemporaries who weren't necessarily as talented as her were having much more successful careers and i remember sure saying something along the lines of like like it's not just about how good you are like you have to put yourself out there and um, which, she, which it was more, it was kind of like do as I say, not as I do, because she never really put herself out there as she, as she, as she could have. But that's a whole other. Yeah, time. that's a, a tough one. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I've seen that time and time again of, of, of some of the people that are the most successful are absolutely the best at what they do. But there are a lot of people that, that are not. And they've just like they have that that unwavering commitment to themselves and um, to, to, to their, their, their self-belief. So. Right. Yeah. And that's what we need, I think, you know, right now yeah. is now more than ever is to enhance and develop that faith and belief in ourselves and that faith yeah. and belief in others and um, knowing that we'll figure it out, that we are still bigger than any problem that could ever come our way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, simple, not easy. Yeah, exactly. So, <laughs> but, but if you practice every day, it gets easier. That right. goes back I, to the whole... And um, here's another analogy, which you'll get because you, you've performed live. It's, mm -hmm. it's like 
you have your practice room chops and your chops on the bandstand or in the studio, whatever. But right, like yeah. a lot of, and because um, I remember when you asked me to do this, I listened to the first episode and it was you and your wife talking about like your relationship in the early days of it and um, yeah. how like a lot of the work I've done, like there's no better way to really put that stuff into practice than being in, in a relationship. Because a lot of a lot of the things that you think you have together, you're great when you're by yourself right. <laughs> under ideal circumstances where everything's exactly the way you want it and you have 100% control of everything. But all of a sudden, when you're in a partnership, that's when you that's when your shit is really te- put to the test. Oh yeah, especially if it's a partner where you guys have that polarity where you can like touch each other's like deepest core wounds so <laughs> which is always uh, a great opportunity to grow from it, it totally so yeah. um but, but yeah but i i would not have been i would not have interpreted had that like perspective about that pre-therapy and pre like right. developing the like just a practice approach yeah so. one of the things when you shared like the the chops and i don't know um the relevance to it for me was kind of like, it's always um, important to be your best, right? Yeah. So even behind, it's like, think of it like of an integrity <laughs> conversation. Yeah. I was in FAT, this band FAT, and you guys, do you remember? Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So I, 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 after we made the record, I went on the road with them. And uh, so I was, I was a bass player in it. And what we would do is we go to rehearsal before the tour and we go, okay, you know, we'd, we'd whatever, two weeks with a week or whatever rehearsals. And then every time we did it, first song was tune-up song. So we, yeah. you know, we like, okay, just, okay, we're good, all right, good, everything's, all the gears working, the loops were every great. The rest of the rehearsal was as if we were playing in front of 15,000 people. Yeah. Jumping, like playing it yeah. as if we were in front of everybody. Yeah. So that what would happen is, is when we would go out live, it was like a Memorex commercial because we didn't have to turn it on necessarily anymore. It was just being, we had more feedback. So it was even bigger, but we yeah. had so much re- like physical yeah. mastery of the jumping oh. and the running and the energy. Yeah. But that, that being said, there, there's all, you know, the Murphy's law thing of you're playing live, your monitor goes out or whatever. That's when being in the field really puts that really right. helps you help whatever, if there were any like shinks in your armor, that's where you work. That's when they come out. Oh yeah. yeah. I remember one time uh, we were playing and I, I did one of the things where you jump up on the drum, drum riser and then, yeah. and then jump off. And yeah. I fell when I landed, just oh. <laughs> face planted in the, right. But got up and again, physical mastery, yeah. kept the energy, yeah. had the momentum. So it was totally okay. Yeah. But that's, you know, that's going to happen no matter what. Yeah. Meaning, but, but things yeah, but, happen. Yeah. Awesome. Well, is there anything coming up that, you know, records that you've uh, worked on that you can share that uh, are coming out soon that we can keep an ear out or any, any, what is some of your favorite records that you've worked on as well that we could maybe go back and. I got to say, like, I love every record I've done for even the ones that like, I didn't even necessarily like the music because, because I, the hang or whatever, or or something. Um, But some of my favorite records as far as like what I'm most proud of musically are not the most successful. Like, like I have my, I, in New York and my place, I have like, when you first thing you see when you walk in is like wall to wall platinum records. And I don't listen to any of that stuff. It's, 
that stuff is there as kind of like to remind me like it's to help with the imposter syndrome that I, right. that I don't <laughs> feel as much as I used to, but I for years struggled with. Right. So it's, it's for that. And it's also just, it's a marketing tool because yeah. if I have somebody that's coming over to discuss a project, it's like they walk in and it's like, there's my Harvard law degree. So this, right. you know what I mean? It's like, it's all, it's all there, but I don't necessarily like love those records. They're, they're all really well made, but um, I got to say the record I was just talking about that Alex, I own a record. I'm really proud of and not coincidentally, I did Billy Mann was a producer and one of my favorite records is Billy Mann's second solo album when he was still part of the, rec- I forget, mm-hmm. it was like DV8 Records or something, which I think DV8. was, yeah. was that Rick Wake's yep. label? Yeah, it was DV8 and A&M. Yeah, A&M. Yeah, that's what, that so, was what we, with that, we were signed to that. Exactly. And I just, unfortunately, I think DV8 didn't know how to work the record. It was just yeah. like, but it was I, such a great, it was, such, Billy's record, it was a great record and it came together in a really almost magical way. Like we, we it was, we all flew to LA and like had a limited amount of time. And we were working with like an A-list producer at the time, but I just think the budget was still limited. We had to get all the basics done, like back to back. In yeah, I worked days. on the first record, not, I don't think on the second yeah, one. Yeah, and um, I, we might, I did a couple tracks on the first record after the fact, and I, you may have been in there, but I think Bob Cataway was. Yeah, it'd probably be Bobby. Yeah. I think it was a co-op actually. So yeah, um, and but um, yeah, so Billy's record and Jive's record, yeah. like there was something about that record that like, even though it's it's got its flaws, there was just something really special about that record and how it came together. Yeah, and that it could be more about like the spiritual aspect than the musical aspect. Cause it's like, I just, I hear it and it reminds me of certain things, but I also think musically there, there was some like really cool risk happening yeah. in, in that music. And also Jive is a really talented guy. You know what I mean? Like, like despite he does a lot of things that maybe are not technically correct. That's what I appreciated about him, that his willingness to go, I don't care. Like I like yeah, it. Yeah, his, his musical instincts. Yeah. the ears are, are monstrous so um i don't know if job's watching but yeah big big problem well, i that. reached out to him again we're gonna we're gonna have to do a full court press to reconnect i'd love to i spoke yeah. to him like a year two years ago maybe yeah i uh, saw him and, in person um, how many years ago in new york after i hadn't seen him for years but yeah no super talented guy so jive's record billy's record um I mean, there's too many to mention because like any record I do with friends, like I love those records. Right. Um, but I don't know. There, there's, there's, and I just heard, I just heard a, a friend of mine is a big British touring drummer, Steve Barney. And he posted a thing. He played with Annie Lennox after I did, but he, he toured the band called Sugar that are, they were huge in the UK, not in the States that Luke produced a couple like, like it was a number one single and I think the other singles as well, but I worked on those and I forgot about those. And he, he just posted him playing on like top of the pops with him in like 2008. And I was like, I haven't thought about that song since then. And I was like, that was a really, it's not even the kind of music I like, but it was a really good record. So I think honestly, pretty much every record I've done, (laughs) I have a fondness for, but I think just that Billy's record and Jive's record are like two that just, there was something really special about how those yeah. were made and how they came together. Um, and then, but yeah, this kid, Alex, I own his record. It just dropped. It's, it's, it's called gospel at 23. It's a really cool record in that he's somebody that uh, if you listen to his past records, very modern, like pop R&B production, 
this was um, vocal, just him singing vocals, uh, piano, and drums, but the drums are literally just me playing a bass drum with a mallet. <coughs> I overdubbed some, some tambourine, and the keyboard player overdubbed some B3, but it's essentially piano, bass drum, vocals, and then a gospel choir. Wow, doing, cool. Doing clapping on the backbeats. So there's live hand, group hand claps, and a gospel choir doing backgrounds, but that's higher record, and that, which is a very risky move for like a, a guy known as a pop artist. Yeah. But it's getting a lot of love. So um, I'm, I'm really proud of that. And I mean, proud to be part of that. And then uh, Ray Angry, I don't know if Ray, Ray, I don't think that's New York until after you were gone, but he's part of the Roots crew. So he, he okay. does, or when they were doing the Tonight Show with, I guess, no, I think he's been back there. So he tours with the Roots and he, he's one of the keyword players that does, it's he and James Poyser, I think are the main two guys in the Roots. So Ray does that, but Ray's also, he's like kind of like Sean Pelton. He's like the, the most work, one of the most working guys in the music industry. Ray, as a musical director and as a keyboard player and as a producer, <coughs> his resume is just crazy. And he, he's worked with everyone. So Ray, Ray and I have become good friends over the years. And so I worked on, he has a new record coming out and it's a, it's a protest song. It's, it's uh part of the whole um, pushback against systemic racism and police mm -hmm. brutality. So the song is called um, Welcome to My Life. And I think parentheses is Don't Shoot. So um, I, I did some programming on that track. And I, th I think it's coming out on S-Curve. Okay. Is S-Curve that, because uh, that's, Josh Stone was S-Curve. Yeah. I forget. But anyway, I think it's coming out on S-Curve. It's Ray with Imani Coppola. You probably worked with her. Um, yes. Yeah, I did. She, I, 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 wow, yes. At uh, Dream Factory. Dream Factory, exactly. Yeah. She, so she co-wrote it and sings on it. It's a really okay. cool track. Kind of like a modern retro, retro vibe. So that, <coughs> they just shot the video in New York. And um, I'm not sure when the, the official release of the single is, but that soon. I'm really proud of that that track and um and then a bunch of other, i've been doing some like i said some indie stuff just working on tracks there there's stuff coming out but i, I never know like when most things i don't know when they're going to come out so, but those right. are two things that i'm sure of and then um and then like i said I, friends of mine that we've talked about collaborating for forever like charlie hunter who plays guitar and bass at the same time really i don't know if you ever checked him out check out his videos pretty mm -hmm. unbelievable um, but Heavy Cat was signed to Blue Note Records for years in the jazz world, but he also worked on D'Angelo Voodoo. He's very, and before that, just a long, long history, um, huge resume also. But like, he's, his thing is because he plays guitar and bass at once, he'll tour with just duos, where it's just him and a drummer. And his, the, the drummers he's worked with is astonishing. And, um, but we, we have some mutual friends, Adam Dorn, I think introduced us and uh -huh. Scott Amendola is another drummer I went to Berkeley with who played with him. Um, so we met and, and it came up, like we were saying, yeah, we'd love to work together. And I was like, yeah, that, like you've worked, you've worked with all my friends. Like, I don't even know. And that came back to the self-sabotage thing. Wow, where yeah. he reminded me, he's like, hey man, every drummer has their own thing. And I was like, oh, you're right. And I was, but now that this is happening, I was like, hey, I have this programming rig and he's somebody that never had a home recording rig. And now he has a home recording rig. And I was oh, like, so instant collabs. Like, maybe I'll just send you some beats. So we're, we're talking about like doing a collaboration with that. And um, a few other friends, same thing. We're just talking about like 
if this thing's going to go on indefinitely, let's just send each other shit and start. So um, hopefully I'll be doing something with Charlie coming up soon. And um, yeah, those, those are like the immediate things on my plate right, right. now. But yeah, as far as if people want to check out records, look for Ray Angry. Um, and you can find him on, I, th I think everybody's on all like uh, this, the regular title. Is title still a thing? I think it is. But title is like one of, I think it's like Jay-Z's and a couple other like big name music people. It's their own streaming platform. Oh, okay. But it's like the artist owned streaming platform. But but there's okay. Apple Music, Title, Spotify, and YouTube. So okay. Alex Iono, Gospel 23, and then Ray Angry, look for his record soon. So Groovy on it. And I'm, I am so blessed because that, that record, the Jive record, uh, definitely yeah. was a very cool time of, of uh, my life yeah. to sharing it with you and Jive and yeah. you know, all the, the stuff we were doing then. And uh, I'm, I'm proud that, uh, that that was one that, that is as near and dear to, to you as it, it was to, is, is to me and, and such yeah, a, it is. an amazing time. It was time. Like, almost like, like a family production because it was like a little bit of a, like a, a family for a minute. So Yeah. And yeah, I think that's also with Billy because it was Billy, me, Adam Dorn, who we all played together in high school. I think yep. it's that kind of thing. Those, because like I said, every record I've worked on, even the stuff that I don't listen to, like on my wall, those are great records. Like, and I, and I, and I, and I had fun working on them because of the people that were in the room, you know? Right. You know how it is with a big pop artist, the artist is usually not even there, but right. it's like <laughs> the producer, the engineer, like the assistant engineer, and if there are other musicians there, like that's, it's it's the hang right so like but but yeah the family records like jives and billy's those are two of my favorites so awesome brother yeah well dude any final words to uh words of wisdom that would something we could uh nosh on uh as we wrap this up i mean i i really appreciate you you know like spending your time here i know whenever we talk we end up talking for hours anyway yeah. but yeah, uh no, i appreciate you asking me to do it and um where I don't I I mean words I have different words of, of wisdom for different audiences whatever you know what I mean? whatever calls you um I don't know a big philosophy of mine has been I didn't I found a book you may have, did we talk about the book essentialism no um it's I've kind of been like oh in my life over the years more and more having this philosophy of fewer better ingredients mm. like literally for cooking or figuratively for anything, for right. music production, for your home, decor, to yeah. whatever. Yeah, just just declutter your life and just just like what are the essentials that you that like and have fewer have fewer better quality ingredients and everything. So I always pass that along to people. But there's a book based on that that I discovered okay. recently called Essentialism. It's pretty cool. Um, and also. I'm starting to lose my voice, so <laughs> hydrate. I, mean, I think <laughs> I think most people do not drink enough water. So, Agreed. Yeah, um, and everybody wear a fucking mask. So that's the other. Oh, sorry. Am I allowed to to curse? You can say here? mask. No. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and that's it. Yeah, and just. Uh, be, I don't know, everybody strive to be the best version of yourself because the world is nothing but a collective of individuals. So that's, yeah, collective consciousness. Be the change, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. <laughs> right, yes. We, we know where all these are going. Yes. And that's the thing, like what's crazy is they're, they're cliches because they're true. Yeah, so true. So, yeah, and the thing is all of these cliches that I've known for years, 
you know, the, the more you learn, the more like they, they just take on deeper meaning. And, yeah. uh, and the more, and the more, the less you realize, you know, so. Right. Oh my gosh. That's, I mean, that's a, another reason why I do this. Like I'm, these questions are, are usually, you know, yeah. well, always like I'm genuinely curious. Like I, I like, I want to learn, I want to grow. I know that I have so much more to, to learn and, and if uh, yeah. others can benefit from the recording of it, then awesome. Yeah, no. Well, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. This is definitely different from, I usually, I've been doing a lot of these over, like in the last few years, but it's all like drumistic or music business. So this was the, this was the first. So thanks for, for having me on this. Oh, dude. Uh, thank you. I, I love you, brother. This is, uh... you, and thanks again. I'm forever indebted to you for like getting me like off and running with, with Pro Tools. And, uh, and also I got to say Core Transformation, which is you, uh, that book. Yep. It's one of the books that, that I, that, um, I don't recommend every book I've read to people, but that's one that I've, I've recommended. And the thing is, I didn't even finish it. I just, um, once you've got the concept, you're like, Oh wait, I this makes sense. And I started putting it into practice and it yeah. worked. So yeah, I, I do that process still to this yeah. day. So many times with, with other yeah. people like just, okay, here, here's the, we gotta do some parts work here. Yeah, totally. So. Awesome, brother. Well, thank you so much. And um, uh, as always, my resources are your resources. So anything I can do to support you, please, uh, please reach out. Awesome, brother. I will see you very soon. Brother, peace. Thank you so much for stopping by and hanging with us and remember to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast right here and we look forward to serving you even more remember download your free guided hypnotic meditation at guidedhypnotic.com that's guidedhypnotic.com where you'll get your free anxiety busting meditation we look forward to serving you, and if you have any questions, comments, please feel free to reach out. All right, we love you for who you are and who you aren't. God bless.